Well, welcome everyone. What a, what a beautiful thing to see uh, and hear and worship along with you all. If, if you're a visitor or guest with us, and it seems like there's a few folks who maybe it's your first or second time here, thank you so much for joining us. My name's Dave. I'm our lead pastor here. And um, I'm, just, I'm just thrilled to be able to, to be together to celebrate with you today. It was early December, 1991, I think. I was 11 years old. Uh, Dad and I had woken up about 5 a.m., broke the ice off our water jug, and Dad made some coffee and a bowl of instant oatmeal. We quickly scoffed that down. Oh, we were in a cabin, by the way, <laughs> near Fort Steele, B.C. We scoffed down our, our, our coffee and our, I don't think I drank the coffee, actually, the oatmeal, and uh, jumped in our Subaru and started heading up uh, to where we would, we would walk for three kilometers or so up to the ridge. Uh, we set up there before the dawn broke to wait for a herd of elk that we had been uh, chasing the last couple of days. And it happened. Somewhere around 8 a.m., the herd crossed and we were able to harvest a cow elk. Now the work begins. Sorry, some of you might not be familiar with hunting stories on a Sunday morning, but here we are. <laughs> uh, we were so pleased. This would be food, the best food for the next year for our family. But that kind of benefit doesn't come without a lot of serious work. Remember, it's 8 a.m. It took us the best part of the day to get that elk out. It was just the two of us. It was about 2.30 in the afternoon by the time we finally got back to where our little green trailer was and loaded up the elk. Uh, and we had finished off the snacks that we had brought long before noon. So as you can imagine, we were hungry. And as was our tradition, we jumped in the vehicle and drove the 20 minutes to Joffrey, a little village with a little greasy spoon diner. And I ordered that bacon cheeseburger that I've been dreaming of for the hours now. And it came and glory. I ate and I ate and was satisfied. Have you ever been really and truly hungry? properly thirsty? If you had, it's hard to forget, like that day elk hunting so many years ago for me now. Now, the folks in Jesus' audience, when he uttered the words that day, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The people who heard him knew what it meant to be hungry in a way that almost none of us in the Western world do. Oh, yes, people around the world go days on end without eating, still in our world, that's true. But that would be a normal part of life in the ancient world. They knew what it meant like, what it meant to be properly hungry. And, and the kind of hunger that Jesus is talking about can't be satiated by a mid-morning snack. The verbs that Jesus used for hunger and thirst here are strong verbs. They suggest a person who is starving unless he eats. A person who is thirsting to the point where if she doesn't get a drink, she will be absolutely parched. So with that real hunger also comes a desperation. That's the kind of hungering and thirsting Jesus describes here. A person in dire need, but in dire need of, of what? <laughs> what are they hungry for? Today as we dive into the next part of our series on the Beatitudes 
It raises the question, what are you hungry for? What do you really, really want? And the way we answer that question, well, that actually drives our whole approach to life, (laughs) to God, to the world around us. And so when Jesus speaks about the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, he is describing someone who deeply desires, longs for, is desperate for this one thing. But of course, that begs the question, what on earth is righteousness? Perhaps some of us will tend to associate that word with like a Victorian sort of prudishness. Um, Maybe others of us connect it with those who would fancy themselves holier than thou and are looking a long way down their noses at us. And, And if that's the sort of association that righteousness has in our minds, then it might not be the kind of thing where even believers say, I really want this. Not something we would die if we didn't have it. So first, what does Jesus mean by righteousness? And then second, what would it even look like to be a person hungry and thirsty for that? Let's see, and let's just pray as we begin. Father, we give you thanks for this time, this space, this opportunity to hear from what your son Jesus is saying to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Give us hearts and minds that are wide open to you, that we might take it in to even taste and see that it's good. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, for his glory and our joy. Amen. So righteousness, what does that mean? If I were to just put you on the spot and ask you, I think a number of us would get fairly close, but let's let's look at what uh, a a biblical definition would be. See, in the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament, righteousness is everywhere. Genesis, Exodus, all over the place in Deuteronomy, and the Psalms. David prays, and you probably know this, he, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Righteousness, as David describes it, is a God-oriented way of living. It has to do with the steps that you're taking. We see it all over the book of Isaiah and the other prophets too. Here it's often associated with God's justice, where it, 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 it's enacting and living out ways of fairness and equity. Martin Luther King Jr., the Baptist pastor and civil rights activist, He famously quotes Amos 5.24 in his I Have a Dream speech. He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. More still, it carries the sense of deliverance or salvation more broadly. Paul, in particular, uses righteousness in this sense as saying it is right standing with God. Paul says it this way in Romans 3.22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You see, this is simply a gift. This is sheer grace. This is the gift of salvation from God to us. And Jesus, right here on the Sermon on the Mount, he uses this word over and over again. In fact, many scholars would say that the theme of righteousness is the central idea of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. We read this in 520, unless your righteousness exceeds that or surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Or beware of practicing your righteousness for others, to be noticed by them. 
6.1. And 6.33, but seek first his kingdom, that's God's kingdom, and his righteousness. So what do we make of this massive word with its massive meaning? The real question is, what does Jesus intend for us to hear in this? First, we need to stand back and see one big element Righteousness is not so much about obedience to a law code as about keeping right relatedness. Listen to how theologian Gerhard von Rod puts it in his Old Testament theology. He says, there's absolutely no concept in the Old Testament with so central a significance for all the relationships of human life as that of righteousness. It is the standard not only for humanity's relationship to God, but also his relationship to his fellows, reading right down to the most petty wranglings. Indeed, it's even the standard for humanity's relationship to the animals and to the natural environment. Notice the emphasis on relationship. Look at how many times it shows up in that quote. It was Daryl Johnson who really pointed this out to me the first time, uh, and, and, and here I quote him, he says this, righteousness is not about living up to a legal principles or standards, rather righteousness is about living in faithfulness to the terms of the relationship. And he gives a few examples. Uh, a spouse is righteous who lives up to the terms of the marriage covenant. A citizen is righteous who lives up to the expectations of civil order. Righteous, therefore, simply means in right relationship or right relatedness. The term righteousness is found everywhere in the biblical story because the biblical story is all about relationships. It really is. In the first chapter of Genesis in the Bible, that's what we see. We see this fourfold relational harmony, and I, I, I know I sound like I'm repeating myself, but this is the picture we're given there, is our relationship with God, with other human beings, with our own self, and with the rest of the created order. And so let's put that all together, and we see really three angles of how righteousness is used throughout the scriptures. The first is that right standing. Sometimes it's called legal righteousness. That's what Paul is referring to in the book of Romans, or the book of Galatians in particular. This is a righteousness that is a sheer gift of God to us that puts us in right standing with God. It's not based on what we've done, but on what he has done and then trusting in that. That's what justification is all about. Justification, another big word, means just as if I'd never sinned. God puts us in right standing with himself by sheer grace. It's a gift. But that, letting that change me, moves us into the other two angles of righteousness. The next one is called moral righteousness. This deals with the sort of character and conduct that, that we live with in response to the goodness of God. It's living in a way that pleases God. It's obedience to Him. It's doing the things He's asked us to do personally, very personally. I want to live for God. That's what that moral righteousness is. And that also can't stay there. It leads to the third angle, often called ethical righteousness or social righteousness. We see this particularly in the law and the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, John Stott, he puts it like this, social righteousness is concerned with seeking humanity's liberation from oppression, 
Together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in the law courts, integrity in business dealings, and honor in home and family affairs. It's probably worth pointing out as well that the, the Greek word that we translate righteousness here, dikaiosune, uh, can also be translated justice. It's the same word in Greek. So we could say, uh, Jesus, uh, we could translate Jesus saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for God's fairness to be lived out in the world, for they will be filled. So maybe you can see the picture taking shape of what Jesus means here. It starts with this gifted, right standing with God, grace to us, that transforms us and moves us to develop a moral character where we live as God's people, living to please Him and Him alone. And finally, that has to spill out into a longing to see the rest of the world come to be put to rights. How could it be otherwise? For God Himself hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for all relationships to be as He originally designed them. And so Jesus in this text is describing a people, citizens of the kingdom, who are transformed by God's loving kindness, gifted righteousness. And then in them is this developed craving for God, God's ways to permeate everything about their lives, how they relate on every sphere. And so if we are lined up, if we are in sync with, if we are blessed by God, how could it be otherwise? So now the promise and just look at this promise. This beatitude, the promise of fullness, of satisfaction, it's in keeping with how Jesus describes his own relationship and his approach to his own father. In John 4.34, you maybe remember the scene, Jesus has been talking with the woman at the well. His disciples are hungry, they go into town, and they come back and say, do you, do you want something to eat, Jesus? Like, you've got to be getting hungry by now. He probably was. Here's his response. My food, like the thing I ultimately long for, that I'm desperate for, that fills me up, my food is to do the will of my Father, of the one who sent me. What does Jesus crave? What fills him up? Doing his Father's will. Now, I would suggest to you that you will not begin to experience the fullness and the satisfaction that you are craving, whatever you're looking for it in, you're not going to find it until we begin to adopt Jesus' own approach to be about God's business in the world. Citizens of the kingdom, therefore, are those who are desperate for God's ways to be the ways in, in my life that I want to line up with Him but then also that spills out into our communities and neighborhoods. It's a longing for people to be treated with dignity and respect. A longing for wholeness and goodness to invade our homes. For there to be kindness and gentleness in the interactions we have with others. And it starts right here in me. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray. When we pray, he says this. Pray this way. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, God on earth as it is in heaven, to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness is to have that prayer on your lips. And look at the promised result. They will be filled. Filled with what? Good question. With what they're hungry for, with righteousness. That right relatedness with God. 
It means being shaped by the indwelling presence of God and coming more in conformity with the God they love. So those, whoa, don't know what that was, but it woke me up too. (laughs) Those who long for righteousness, long for the world to be put to right. And when Jesus returns, they will finally and fully experience it. They will be satisfied. And so understanding righteousness as right relatedness to God and conformity to God's will and ways, that'll help us to actually understand what Jesus means when he uses the word righteousness again in the Sermon on the Mount. Because think of it, how could my righteousness surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees? For Jesus says that it must. Remember, he says, unless it surpasses their righteousness, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. How on earth could we do that? I mean, these are meticulous law keepers. Paul, he was one of them. He says in Philippians 3 that in regard to keeping the law, he was flawless. Every single thing he said, I did it perfectly. Flawless. How do you surpass flawless the same way Paul does? How does he do it? By recognizing that the scribes and Pharisees had completely missed the point of what it meant. First, they viewed their efforts, uh, checking off the right boxes on the list, as a means to attain right standing with God, as though what God were really interested in was just rule-keeping to the letter of the law. And that entirely misses the point. They had turned a, turned a desire to please God, moral righteousness, into moralism. And that turns doing the right thing, like just for the love of God, into, well, seeing the right thing as a means of self-salvation. That's at heart what self-righteousness is all about. If I perform, then God has to accept me. That's self-righteousness. Johnson, again, he puts it well. He says, they, the scribes and Pharisees, thought of righteousness in terms of external conformity to the letter of the law. But as Jesus shows us, one can obey the letter of the law and not at all be faithful to the relationship being protected by the law. And that's exactly the point that Jesus makes next. He uses the example of murder and adultery to do so. Jesus taught that simply to say, well, don't murder or, you know, don't sleep with someone who's not your spouse, it's really not going deep enough. For murderous or lust-filled thoughts themselves destroy the relationship. So Johnson continues, he says this, thus a woman could say to herself, I'm righteous toward my neighbor as long as I don't cause his blood to flow, ignoring the issues of anger and words of insult, which also damage relationships. No wonder there are so many instructions in the New Testament that tell us how to, that we have to watch how we use our words. Johnson continues, a man could say to myself, I am righteous toward that woman as long as I don't sleep with her, ignoring the issue of lustful fantasies, whereby he is using her for his own ends, which damages relationship. So you see, righteousness is all about relational wholeness with God, with others, 
with the broader society and the rest of creation. Here's the second thing to see, though. As soon as I start talking about that, about what that really means, and as I, as I think through the implications for my life, to live in conformity with God's will for me as a human, one thing becomes clear very quickly. That's not me. That's not my life, and I can't do it. Not on my steam, at least. So Michael Wilkins, a scholar, he, he says it well. He says the ultimate source of that kind of righteousness, where it flows from, is God himself. This passionate pursuit of righteousness flows from a transformed heart. And indeed, that's what I hope to be showing all along here. This list of beatitudes, it's not presented as a list of commandments to be performed, but rather the norms of the kingdom of God. A description of the way things are, how, how they work in God's economy. And when we open ourselves up to the freedom and hope that Jesus gives, when we, when we repent, when we do the U-turn and just throw ourselves on, on Jesus' mercy and love, he gives us a new heart that can function in new ways, ways that are truly beyond me in my own steam. And out of that transformed heart comes new passions, new hungers, new thirsts. So what do we do with this beatitude? How, how do we respond to it? Well, first thing is this, I think. We simply hold on to the promise that Jesus makes. I would put it like this. If you have a deep desire, a longing for the world to be put right, if you long to live as God made you to live, it could be easy to lose hope in our world. But Jesus' promise says, don't give up on that. Hold on to that. Why not give up? Like, have you seen this old world? Well, because God himself grieves over the brokenness. And then he does something about it. He gives himself. He lets his life break. He's crushed in order to rebuild what he intended a new world for all who trust in him. You see, with the death and resurrection of Jesus, a new world has dawned. Yes, the kingdom of light is exposing and expelling the kingdom of darkness. It is. No, it's not going to be finally and fully known till Jesus returns. But even now, the kingdom is advancing, and you and I are called to embrace that and be embraced by it, to be a part of that. So the hunger pains... The longing within you, and I'm sure it's there for many, it will be satisfied one day. Don't give up, Jesus says. Hold on to this promise. Second, what is hunger after all? What is, what is thirst? Well, they are God-given, physiologically hardwired ways for our body to tell our brain, hey, something is wrong they're like a, a check engine light for our bodies. They tell us, you need to eat something. Uh, unless you get some food and water, you're heading for breakdown, buddy. Low blood sugar levels, dehydration, be a mess. In fact, you will die if you don't get it. They're a check engine light. They tell us something is wrong. So that sensation of hunger and thirst physically, they tell us that we need to do something to respond or we suffer the consequences. They drive us. 
And I think that's why Jesus uses that language. He says, what's driving you? And in the context he's speaking, when we consider our drives, our longings, the things we hunger for, well, we also have to consider that we may be longing for and being driven by things that will not ultimately satisfy as well. Only in righteousness, in right-relatedness, in pursuing that, will our appetites begin to be reformed and begin to grow in the right direction. So, that leaves us with the question, what are you hungry for? Just ask yourself that right now. What, what drives you? If I ask the question, what do you really want? And Jesus asks that over and over again in the gospel to people, in the gospels. He says, what do you want? Just sit with that for a second. What are the thirsts that are leading you? See, notice that theme of righteousness. It comes up again in the Sermon on the Mount, as we noticed. And it has a lot to do with our hungers and thirsts. Look at Matthew 6, starting at verse 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Then down to verse 31. Jesus' conclusion, so don't worry about your life, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for pagans? Now, that's a word we don't usually use. It means those who don't trust in the living God. For pagans run after these things. Their longings, their drives, their desires are for what? Material security. They run after these things. And your, your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. There's the word. And all these things will be given to you as well. Notice, Jesus knows that we are prone to seek our security to seek a sense of having our hands on the wheel. We're prone to seek that in our finances and in other ways. But he also points out that that will distance us from actually serving and loving God. Do you see it? We end up treating money as a sort of God, something that will shape our world and hearts if we don't seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Jesus says, you don't need to worry in that direction if you seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. The second implication is this. Jesus not only promises satisfaction and fullness to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, but we are actually to seek these things, like to be actively engaged in and pursuing a life according to God's righteousness. Now, to be clear, again, God in his grace grants us that legal standing, that right relatedness by his grace and then that transforms our heart. But what comes out of it? Jesus says, seek it, seek righteousness. That's to be your top priority. So let's just home in on that, what it means to seek righteousness. Personal level, first, the personal. That's the moral righteousness angle we looked at. When Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, that prayer detangles us from our own self-centered will. And it's the best thing that can ever happen to us. 
I've made this point before, but it bears repeating. To pray your kingdom come, your will be done, is actually to pray against ourselves. It's to pray your kingdom come, not mine. Jesus, your will be done, not mine. And so the prayer actually confronts us with the need to be honest about how my desires are often still distorted and bent, and they need to be brought in line with God's kingdom, His righteousness, that my heart can be transformed and reshaped by God. And so somewhat ironically, however, there is such joy in this. That's when you find true freedom is when you let God be God. Take your hands off the wheel. Let him take it again. Uh, a friend shared a post with me this week on social media, and uh, there was some practical wisdom in it. And, and let me just read a bit of what it said. It said, if you watch HGTV, that's the home and garden TV. Some of you know what that is. If you watch HGTV too long, you'll become dissatisfied with your home. Stay on social media too long, you'll become dissatisfied with your life. Then it goes on to wisely suggest, unplug, pray, read any book, spend time with loved ones, take a walk. Our minds are easily influenced, but we control what the influences are. Choose wisely. I think that's helpful. We do have a choice of how and what we will cultivate how we will cultivate our longings and our appetites. So what will we aim at and how? Well, the friend's photo had a post, uh, in the post had an open Bible. It was open to Psalm 34. So I just went, Psalm 34, that's really actually apropos to this idea. It says in that Psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. One way to deepen our hungering and thirsting for righteousness is by tasting it's growing our appetites in the right direction by letting his ways be where we feed, what we pay attention to. You see, I don't just read the Bible each day to get more information. I've read it before. I've read it a number of times before. I'm not looking for more information when I read the Bible. What I'm doing primarily is feeding on God's vision of the kingdom. It's reorienting my desires my hungers. That's what happens when I read the text. But more too. That tasting is visceral. It's actually a stepping out in faith and beginning to live like it might actually be true. Like what if the meek really do inherit the earth? Despite all appearances to the contrary. That takes a radical tr kind of trust if you're actually going to embody a life of meekness. It says, I'm not going to be pushy. I'm not going to push my agenda. I trust that I don't have to hit back, that I can actually turn the other cheek, because that's how God is. You'll remember Jesus is described as the one who is meek. That's where God's approval lies. And so Jesus is recasting for his audience what they believe the blessed life to be. <laughs> recasting it for us too, for sure. See, Jesus will go on in the rest of his message and talk about this righteousness, that theme throughout the sermon. He will go on to tell us it means putting away hatred and lust. It'll mean being people of integrity, of truthfulness, of letting your yes be yes and your no be no. 
He tells us to give of our stuff freely, generously. Especially when people are demanding it, he says, give them more than they were asking for. Shockingly, he says, turn the other cheek. He says, love your enemies to pray for those even who persecute you. And he says it all with a straight face. Like we're supposed to believe it. And then do it. He'll speak about our relationship with showing off and tells us to put that away, that desire to be noticed. He says, that's not for you. He'll address our relationship with money, and that one always gets our attention. And more, he'll speak about ridding ourselves of a judgmental spirit. He says we need to adopt a genuine concern for others, looking out for their needs, like doing for them what we would want them to do for us. And then he sums it all up by telling us that if we want the life that he gives, it'll be by listening to his ways, and we would be a fool, he tells us, not to begin walking it out in everyday life. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, he puts it bluntly, as he often does. He says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Of course, it's an overstatement. But it's an overstatement that brings our hearts and reminds us that, yes, this text tells us that we need to actually try it. So the trusting is a visceral walking it out. It's not just listening to God's word. Like James says, it's putting it into practice. Now, if you think Jesus is all wrong, <laughs> that that's not how the world actually works, you'd be right. That's no, but he's not describing this world. He's describing his world. He's describing the kingdom of God. It's a world that's totally upside down to what you and I experience on a regular basis. And he says, kingdom, uh, citizens of this kingdom live in a different way. So as we give ourselves to a, a, a desire for this righteousness, for living lined up with God, that always spills out into the social or corporate dimension. Remember, righteousness is deeply personal. It starts there, but it can't stay there. In Micah 6.8, there's a question, what does God really want from you? And this is what we get, the answer from the prophet. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? Great question. Here's the answer, to act justly. That's that righteousness theme right there. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly means to act fairly. It means to give advantage to the disadvantage. That's the description or definition of the word there. Give advantage to those who are disadvantaged currently. It means to address the structures and burden, uh, the structures that burden and oppress. It means being awake to the ways and places that people are often mistreated in our world and then working to shift those systems. As we look back in history, we can see that too often those who claimed the name of Jesus actually did the opposite. And that's one of the things we're wrestling right now in our country, in our city. I mean, consider the ways that children were treated at the Kamloops Residential School. Far too often those who were to be ambassadors of Christ acted in ways that could only be called evil. So then what does it mean for us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice in our city? It has to at least include the acknowledgement of the sin and evil of the past. It has to at least include a desire to be agents of healing in our city. It has to at the very least include listening to the hurts and needs of our First Nations neighbors. 
may we have God's deep wisdom and courage to seek righteousness for our city in this moment. And sometimes those who follow Jesus have played the tune of the gospel brilliantly. I think of William Wilberforce, and many of you will know his story. Seeking justice and mercy for the world, that is what drove him to campaign for over 40 years in British Parliament to end the slave trade. 40 years of dogged determination before anything actually changed. That's a long time to have one thing on your mind, isn't it? And he did it by God's grace. It's how Susan B. Anthony gained a keen desire for God's righteousness and worked to give women the right to vote. For women to be able to own property, for women to be able to attend higher learning institutions. It was Rosa Parks who said it was her trust in God that enabled her to give her the courage to not give up her seat when a white man on the bus said, give it up. She became the mother of the civil rights movement in the U.S. She says in her book, Quiet Strength, I felt the Lord would give me the strength to endure whatever I had to face. God did away with all my fear. It was time for someone to stand up or, in my case, sit down. I refused to move. That's good, isn't it? It's a burning desire for righteousness at the social scale. It was Nelson Mandela's Christian faith that drove him to stand against the injustices of apartheid in South Africa, even if it meant being in jail for 30 years unjustly. Those are just a few examples of those who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. But we too are a part of that tradition. Whenever we make even just small and consistent steps to seek justice in our world, God's kingdom, God's righteousness in our homes, in our workplaces, in schools. But here's the rub. There's one other place that righteousness is mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at it in a few weeks. It says this, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those I just cited who hungered and thirsted for righteousness that overflowed into the social sphere, they often paid for it and often very dearly. For they lived to a different tune, the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of light. When it pushes against the kingdom of darkness, darkness kicks back. But they entrusted themselves to Jesus, to the Father who would ultimately vindicate just as Jesus himself did. So may it be that in the tasting tasting of the life that God has called us to, that our hunger and thirst for the things of God, the right relatedness, that it would grow. And may we be assured that our desire to do the right thing, one day that will prevail, one day it will be fully realized, and one day we'll be full. And so we pray in concert with the end of the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray as the team comes forward too. Father, as I think about righteousness and as we looked at it today, I just recognize that in my own steam, uh, that is never going to be me. But today, I and maybe the rest of us here too, we cast ourselves on your mercy and, and we say thank you, God, that you transform hearts. And I ask, Father, that you would be growing in me and in us 
a hunger and thirst for your ways to be the ways in the world. For those who are maybe struggling as they, as they heard this message with this theme of righteousness, I want to pray, Father, that, that you would send your Holy Spirit to, to quietly and helpfully encourage that we might find the blessing of satisfaction, of fullness, as we give ourselves to your righteousness, your ways. Amen.